um, Judges chapter 8, verses 1 down to 27 today. Um, we'll be looking at a couple things, Gideon's army and Gideon's ephod. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the, the war that Gideon fought, um, or the completion of the war that he fought, and the continuation of his worship. And what we're talking about today is the kingdom uh, that, that Gideon kind of stewarded as he was in, in uh, kind of a leadership role in uh, Israel at this time. So a uh, couple things that we're going to look at. Um, making a right judgment and having the right worship is something I want you to just put in your, put in your pocket there. Making a right judgment and having the right worship. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray for our time because I'm just going to be working through the passage during our time here. Um, so if you would, join me in prayer. <clears throat> Yahweh, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. We thank you for uh, the book of Judges and its challenge to our hearts. And um, we thank you for the opportunity to look at the story of Gideon and uh, be encouraged to have faith in you, uh, to worship you, um, and to be obedient to you. And Lord, pray that uh, as we... Uh, just compare Gideon's faithfulness uh, to carry out your instructions to our lives. We pray we would operate uh, as you've called us to, as kingdom um, ambassadors, Lord, being obedient to Christ. And so we thank you for this season as we remember the coming of Jesus. And uh, Lord, we pray that we would be um, members of his kingdom, uh, representing him and following his orders and instructions in our lives, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this time. Uh, as we look at this chapter, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would guide uh, my words. May they be your words and not mine. Um, thank you for this time, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so picking up from last week, uh, we saw Gideon right, surround an army of what we now know is probably 120,000. I didn't realize this was kind of referenced uh, later in, in uh, Judges 8 here. Uh, but we kind of estimated, we we're like maybe 100,000 is what we thought based on, like, there's 30,000 here. Well, it turns out that uh, the army that uh, Gideon is chasing down uh, was actually 120,000 soldiers in total. And at this point in his chase of them, he's down, they're down to 15. So they've literally, like, destroyed themselves uh, in front of 300 uh, men of Israel. So right now, Gideon is continuing his pursuit of the kings who escaped the initial battle. So you remember the initial battle was 300 men led by Gideon with torches and trumpets. were their only weapons, right? They surround this army of 120,000 men, blow the trumpet, light these torches, and the army is so scared of Gideon and the Lord that they turn on themselves. They actually fight themselves and uh, destroy themselves to the tune of 100,000 of them, right? Um, so now Gideon is pursuing the kings uh, who were the rulers of these people, and he's pursuing them through Israelite land and then on beyond the Jordan into the east side of the Jordan there. Um, and so that's where we pick up in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1 to 3 says this, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is Gideon, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Ebezer? God has given into your hands the prince of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, 
what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So he comes into Ephraim. Ephraim says, hey, we wanted to be included in the battle too. Like, why didn't you call us to fight? <laughs> They're jealous, right? And, uh, and Gideon says, hey, like, you've done some amazing stuff. And actually, like, kind of persuasively calms them down at this point. Um, but just catch that, that they're looking at Gideon and saying, hey, we wanted the glory of this battle. Like, you should have included us also. Instead of saying, wow, what has God done and glorifying God for what he has accomplished through the hand of Gideon and his 300 men, instead, he looks at the, they look at him and go, like, we wanted to be part of it. Why didn't you include us? And so um, we see first that they're making a wrong judgment, right? They're looking at something that has rightly happened and saying, Oh, you did it wrong. I know it was a great victory, but like you should have included us. What are, what are we doing, right? Like, give glory to God for what he has done rather than go on the outside of it and go like, ah, you should have done it this way. It would have been better. Like, would it have been? You know? So uh, getting his feeling of his critiques and finally like chills him out and, and moves forward. Um, continuing to verse four, it says this, Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with them, exhausted, yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zebah and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. So these are the kings that he is pursuing out into the land. They're escaping with their army. And they come to a city that is run by Israel. So these are the people of Israel running this city. And he comes to them and says, my men are exhausted, okay? Listen, if you are so exhausted, as an army of 300 people, you're so exhausted that you stop pursuing a king that is running from you, right? Like, think about you're in pursuit of someone who's stolen something from you, right? Like, you're not going to stop until you absolutely have to, right? You're going to keep chasing them as far as you possibly can in your strength, until you catch them, right? So this just gives us a picture of how exhausted an army of 300 men could become that Gideon says, okay, we actually have to stop at this city. I know we're chasing these kings, but we need to stop because we're like famished. It's not like they were just like, man, I could go for a burger. It's like, it's more like I'm going to pass out. Like I'm going to die because I haven't had enough food and I've been fighting a battle and chasing this army. And so they come to their own people and say, hey, could we have some bread, you know? Um, and the reason I want to frame that up for you is that uh, this, this chapter, um, Gideon's going to come back and revenge against these cities. And many people look at this and go, well, Gideon, man, he was pretty, pretty forceful in his revenge. I was like kind of rough. And we have to read it in light of what was done to him also. We have to remember that his army was betrayed by his own people, not given food, and it's a miracle they continued on in the fight that was before them. So comes the men of Succoth, says, hey, can we, can we have some bread? The officials of Succoth say, and the hands, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? Basically, you're almost to catch them. Why would we stop to give you bread? And they go like, because we're stuck. Like, why do you think we would stop? We're starving. We've been fighting all day. Um, so Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh 
with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Shoo. Um, and from there he went up to Penuel, another city of Israel, and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered as the men of Succoth had answered. So two cities of the Israelites turn to Gideon and say, yeah, you don't need our bread. Like, wh- what? Why, why are you treating your brothers this way? Because you weren't called up to fight with them? Because, like, you wanted glory too? Like, what is the motive to withhold bread from your brothers? But they do. And so he said to the men of Penuel the same, when I come again in peace, that is, after I've completed my mission, I will break down this tower. Penuel apparently had, like, a famous tower. And, uh, and they came, he comes later and, and destroys it. So Gideon and his 300 men are rejected bread, sustenance, from uh, two cities of the Israelites, and they continue pursuing the kings of Midian. Uh, verses 10 to 12. Now Zeba and Zalmona were in Karkor, uh, Karkor with the army of about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. So yeah, 135,000 total, 120,000 had already been killed in the battle, right? So their, their army of 135,000 has dwindled to 15,000, and like predominantly because they turned on each other, not because Gideon had enough people to fight. Remember, he had 300 people. And so they all turn on themselves in confusion, um, and they're down to 15,000. Verse 11, And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and attacked the army, and the army felt, uh, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmona fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmona, and he threw all the army into a panic. So they accomplish the mission without getting bread. <laughs> they just continue to go forward, even though their brothers uh, rejected uh, any sustenance for them. <clears throat> Verses uh, 13 to 17. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harius. He captured a, the young man, a young man of Succoth, one of the cities, back to the city of Succoth, and questioned him. And he wrote down for him, this man, uh, wrote down for Gideon, uh, the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men and said, Behold, Zeba and Zilmona, about whom you taunted me, Right? So, not only did they withhold bread, they're taunting him. They're accusing him, taunting him, and withholding bread from his army. These are his people. (laughs) Okay? These are his own people. Right? This is like, you know, us hurling insults at each other inside this room. Right? This is what that is. We're Ken. Right? We're family. And so, he says to them, this is how you treated me and my army saying, Are not the hands of Zeba and Zalmona already in your hand that we should give you bread to your men who are exhausted? And then this is, uh, this is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I think, especially in Judges, uh, verse 16. And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns and the, of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. That's, that's all the description we have of what happened. Uh, he taught them a lesson. And so you, now you might know where the phrase comes, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Yeah, the lesson is briars and, uh, and such. So he taught them a lesson. And then verse 17, he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of that city. 
Um, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But he goes on in verse 18. He said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men who killed you at Tibor? And they answered, uh, as you were, uh, as you are, so they were. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, those men you killed, he's talking to the kings he captured, those men you killed, they're my brothers. They're the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not have killed you. So he said to Jethro's firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. And Zeba and Zelman said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zelman, and he took the crescent ornaments that were around their necks of their camels. Um, it's a gruesome story, Judges. Judges is a, a crazy land, and there's a lot to parse out, and a lot of differences of interpretation of how we're to receive these judges. <clears throat> and some can look at this and go, man, uh, Gideon was uh, vicious and vengeful and acting in his, own, uh, in his own flesh in these things. And I'm not going to doubt that maybe there's some of that in him. But we cannot ignore what the facts of the, like, the broader picture are. Okay? The calling to the people of Israel from the Lord, right? if we go back to Joshua, was to step into this land and be the hand of judgment by God against this people and say, you have ignored the call of God, and now judgment has come upon your people. And instead of acting in obedience as God had called them as a people to do and following through with the conquest, removing all the people of the land from the land the Lord gave back to Israel, instead of acting in obedience, they send and intermarried with these people and allowed them to stay. And the result of that action is the book of Judges, this land, where even a, a brother of an Israelite would say, I'm not going to give you bread. You've already got the kings. And taunt you and say, nope, I know your 300 men are exhausted and tired and about to die of starvation, but, I mean, you had torches, you know, and fought them in one, so surely you can win now. Like, you should hear the sarcasm from them that they're like, bro, you didn't need us to come fight you, fight with you, so we're not going to give you bread. Brutal, right? And where does that come from? That comes from the spirit of the world, okay? The people of Israel at this time had partnered with the spirit of the people that they are uh, living in and among. And so, yeah, it's gruesome. Um, and and uh, uh, Gideon ends up treating his own brothers as if they were Canaanites, because really, that's what they've become. And so he actually makes a proper judgment in going, listen, city of Succoth and city of Penuel, you've become as a Canaanite, and we will treat you as Canaanites now. And he teaches them a lesson, as it says. Um, man, it's just it's harsh. It's, it's rough, right? Um, but we, we need to be careful to go, Who's on the right side of this? Like, there's bloodshed both ways, okay? There's some people hanging out this group of soldiers who is trying to carry out God's will uh, you know, at risk of their lives, and there's others that are coming back and venging what they feel is a righteous judgment and is difficult to read and difficult to look at. Um, but this is Gideon, and he's uh, marked by being obedient to what God has called him to do. 
And God called him to defeat the Midianites. And he did. <laughs> so his army of 300 goes and captures the kings of the Midianites um, and, and defeats them completely so that they cannot oppress the people of Israel any longer. So this is the first story of Gideon chapter 8. The second story is uh, what's happening in, in, in Gideon's kind of like after this major war, okay? The major war Gideon was called to fight was against the Midianites. He completes that mission. After that, people are looking to him to step in and lead in a way. And so we talk about what that is in verses 22 to 28. It's a very important part of Gideon's story, I think. Um, so chapter 8, verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, right? They're looking at Gideon and going, you with 300 men defeated an army of 135,000 people. We think that we want you to be our leader. Like, it's pretty obvious, right? Like, from the fleshly perspective, right? We're going, oh, that's definitely the guy that we're going to pick to be maybe even king. So, many of you have said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. This is a long-term contract for the throne in Israel is what they're extending to him. Like, if you can defeat them, we will put you in charge. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon's response is not what you'd expect from uh, like a self-centered, prideful, uh, sinful man. Right? That's, that's what he's characterized as, as this, this brute of a man that doesn't like obey the Lord fully. And I would challenge you that like his response ought to be, if he were, just gratifying his flesh and taking every opportunity to support himself and rise up, his, his response in that case should have been, yes, I'll be king. I'll rule over you. He should have accepted it at that point. But instead, verse 23, he says, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon knows who's in charge. From the outset of his calling unto his obedience in, in, in uh, following uh, this mission that he's been given to defeat the Midianites, he knows who's doing this. He knows who's in charge. And so when the men of Israel come to him, he says, you don't put me in charge. You put God in charge. And it should echo to us later when we get to the time of the kings, when the Israelites are asking for a king, Samuel says, you shouldn't ask for a king. God is your king. But if you want a king like the rest of the nations, then we'll give you a king, and this is how he's going to treat you, poorly. And so Gideon knows this already. Before the time of the kings comes, he says, I'm not going to rule over you. God should be your ruler. This is the response of a man who has faith in God. Verses 24 to 26, he tries to, he attempts to, <laughs> encourage them toward this end. Verses 24, Gideon said to them, let me make one request of you. If I can make one request, the Lord is going to be your ruler, but I want to make one request of you from this position of authority. Do this. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. So they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites, and they answered, we will willingly give them. So they're giving them their service, right? 
they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. So I didn't measure out how much gold that is, but basically they got a lot of gold, right? Tons of gold. And Gideon gathered the spoil, and he made an ephod out of it, and he put it in his city in Orpha. And all Israel whored after the altar there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Gideon makes an ephod, and a lot of times he is uh, condemned for being an idolater. Like the interpretation is, oh, he made an altar that wasn't allowed, basically. But an ephod is something to be worn by a priest. It's a garment. He made a golden garment that is to be, you know, represent what is to be worn by a priest. It's supposed to go over you. <clears throat> it's a protection. And so he makes this um, not that it would be worshipped, not even that it will be worn. He makes it as a testimony to what he said to them before. He said, God will be your ruler. And so to commemorate that, to represent that, let's take all the spoil and go, let's make a, make a commitment today. We're committing to the Lord, okay? He is the one that is in charge. <clears throat> and instead of worshiping the Lord in this time, instead of this, it became a snare to them. A snare to Gideon's family that the people of Israel began to worship the thing itself rather than the God who gave it. Gideon's intention in making this ephod is not for himself. It became a snare to them because the people of Israel then turned back to worshiping a thing rather than their God. And this is how dark the heart of the people of Israel is in this time. <clears throat> so there's two things that I want to take from <clears throat> this, uh, this portion of Gideon's life. The first is this. <clears throat> Gideon was fighting the right battles against the kings of Midian. He was fighting the right battle, okay? <clears throat> he knew what the battle was, and he was fighting the right battle, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing I want to take from this is that Gideon, in his life, from beginning of end of the story, was worshiping the Lord, okay? We saw him worship the Lord in his encounter with the angel, having a real conversation with the Lord in that. We saw his <clears throat> worship of the Lord when, he, when the Lord revealed that he would defeat the army. He, as soon as the Lord showed it to him, he stopped and he worshiped. We see him here when he's offered the throne by the people of Israel. He said, no, no, no. <clears throat> the Lord is on the throne. Let's worship him. Here, let's make an ephod. Okay, if you need a symbol, let's make an ephod and let's worship the Lord. <clears throat> So Gideon is fighting the right battles, <clears throat> and he's worshiping the Lord. These are the two things I want to draw out of this and, uh, and compare a little bit with, with what Jesus teaches in his kingdom. <clears throat> so first, Gideon was fighting the right battle against the kings of Midian. Like all the other judges, Gideon is executing the judgment which God had given to Israel to accomplish the conquest of Canaan. They didn't do it. <clears throat> and in these stories... Their true heart is revealed. 
their true heart is revealed in these stories. <coughs> um, we can kind of look at Israel and go, well, they didn't, they didn't complete their obedience. Maybe, maybe the reason they didn't complete their obedience in the conquest is because they had compassion for these people that they saw in the land. Right? That's, the, that's one explanation you could take. Well, maybe they didn't complete the conquest because they just felt bad for these people. They had more compassion for these people than God did. <clears throat> Have you ever been in that place in your mind? You're wondering, like, why do some people go to hell and why do some people go to heaven, right? Why is God letting, letting some not choose him and why are some choosing him? And you're wrestling through that. And, and in fact, like, so much so that you want to make the decision on behalf of other people to, like, convince them to follow the Lord, Right? And then you make start, like maybe start making concessions for them to give them more grace than even the Lord is willing to give them. It's a really tricky spot to be at. We have to wrestle with this thing. Like God is the one who is in charge. And God has called Israel at this point, like rewind back to this time. He has called them saying, this people has totally given themselves over to the world. And I'm calling you to bring judgment on them now. I've waited 400 plus years that they might turn and come to me, but they have not. And so now your obedience is to go and, and bring judgment on them. <clears throat> we do the same thing uh, sometimes today, having more compassion for humanity than even God may have in our eyes. But what that truly is, is our lack of obedience. The only reason they didn't accomplish the conquest is not because they just had more compassion <laughs> it's because they didn't obey, right? Um, there's a sermon I heard a long time ago from uh, Oral McManus, and he was talking about a conversation he was having with a young man, and it's a common conversation on this topic. He said, and the young man was a new, new believer, and he said, man, like, what about the people who don't know in India? I, I was reading this day about this tribe in India that doesn't know the Lord. They don't even have a Bible and, and all this, and like, what is God going to do with them, Right? And Erwin turned this guy's, you can hear the question, right? It's like, if they haven't heard, then how will they follow Jesus? Is the question in this young man's heart, right? And I know you've all been there. You've all had that question. It's a big, big world. How do some people, like, not know? And Erwin's turn to him was, well, like, you could kind of, like, stew over that philosophically, but, like, maybe consider that God's put them on your heart for a reason, and like maybe you're called to go to them, right? Right? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> so, so you have to check your heart and go, well, do I have so much compassion for people that don't know Jesus that I'm going to go make a difference with it? Or am I just going to judge God for his lack of compassion. No, God is calling you to obey what he has called you to do. Their lack of obedience not, uh, it wasn't out of compassion for humanity, it was about a lack of obedience that they didn't complete the conquest. Their lack of obedience is also shown um, in that when they did not complete their conquest, they ended up becoming servants of the gods of the land instead of the God of heaven. So we've got to pray, <laughs> is, the, is the application. We must pray 
that we do not cast the wrong judgment on the right battles. You saw at the beginning of this, these battles, Gideon is running into the people of Penuel, the people of Succoth, the people of Ephraim, and they're all judging Gideon for what he is doing. Okay, they're saying, you're not doing this right. You should have included us. Uh, your people probably have enough food. It's okay. Like, you're strong guys. They're casting judgment on him while he's actually trying to do the right thing. And so we've got to pray that we don't cast the wrong judgment upon the right battles. Uh, this is a heart that we have all the time, and Jesus exposed it in his teaching. Uh, you know the story of the prodigal son, right? Um, one son goes out and sows his oats and all this kind of thing, comes back. And the most powerful part, one of the most powerful parts of the, the story of the prodigal son is what the older brother responds with. The older brother had a wrong judgment about a right battle that was happening. Luke 15, 25 to 32. Now his older brother was in a field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But his answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, and I've, I've, I've never disobeyed your commands. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who's devoured your property and with uh, prostitutes and killed your fattened calf in, uh, for him, you killed your fattened calf for him. He said to him, son, you, you're always with me, and, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead, is now alive. He was lost, and, and now he's found. Right? We, we can look at someone who's come home to the kingdom and say, well, they weren't doing it right. And God's going, who are you, right? This person has turned in obedience to me. Let's stop figuring out, like, were they doing it right and rejoice that one has been saved. Jesus taught this in the healing of the Sabbath. He, in Mark 3, he went into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see what he'd do on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to this man with a withered hand, come here. He said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill? But they were silent. And they looked around at him with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees immediately went out and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees, during Jesus' time, had the wrong judgment about a right battle. Jesus is fighting the right battle. He's going on the Sabbath and going, Look what injustice is happening here. This man is coming to worship with a withered hand. And you, the only reason you won't heal him is because you think healing on the Sabbath is wrong. Is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath or do, to do harm? Too often we value a temporary justice over an eternal life. And we have to check our hearts on that. Okay, are we going to be like the people around Gideon and go, well, you didn't quite do it right, so I'm not going to help you. We have to steward in our hearts the heart of the Father who would rejoice over the right victory of one coming home. This is, we, we have to wrestle with this um, because, listen, I know you're not out there like chasing down the kings of Midian, 
okay, to like kill them because they took the land that's the Lord's. Like, I know you're not like in some army battle right now where you're doing that, okay? I don't think. Anybody, no one's like chasing down, okay. Not chasing down any kings? No? Okay, okay all right. Yeah. Um, we're not fighting any holy wars right here, okay, in that sense. Um, but the fact is, every day you are fighting wars. There's battles you're fighting in, in your minds, okay, uh, with, your, with your friends, with your coworkers, uh, with your family, okay? And uh, there is a battle to be fought. Ephesians 6, 12, you guys know this well. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're in battles every day, and we have to recognize that there is a battle happening. And so often, we can look at one another in the kingdom of God, like church to church, okay? Little church to big church, big church to little church, and go, you're not really doing it right. Like, you need more programs, or you need less programs, or you need this, whatever, whatever it is. Your carpet needs to be blue instead of red. Like, whatever it is, right? You, you know that this is a thing that happens in the kingdom of God. And we're looking at each other in the kingdom of God, not, like the, not just our church, but like the big church going, you're not really doing it right, so you're not quite as close to the Lord as I am. And I just challenge our hearts that when we do that, okay, when we look at across town go, like Calvary Baptist, man, they're too big, got too, much, too many resources, you know, they got too many people in there, they got amazing teachers, you know, like, what is the deal, you know? They're just, they're just too big. Far be it from us, right, to go, man, they're just doing it a little bit wrong, and I'm really kind of upset about that. <laughs> that is the spirit of the people of Ephraim, the spirit of the people of Penuel, the spirit of the people of Succoth. They looked at Gideon and said, you didn't quite do it the way I liked you to do it, so I'm not going to help you out, and I'm not going to care for you. And I'm telling you, that is the spiritual battle that the kingdom of God is faced with today. As the church, Big C Church, we have to look at each other and how God is using us across the world and go, I'm praying for you, I know you do it differently, and that's a beautiful thing. Let's go, right? Gideon was fighting the right battles, and far be it from us to judge wrongly the right battles that are happening in the church. Second thing, Gideon was worshiping the Lord. Um, we have to be careful that we're not worshiping the wrong things. We can very quickly worship the wrong things, and Jesus taught this when he came in his kingdom. This is one of his teachings. Matthew 23, 23, he says to the scribes and Pharisees, You hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. We read some of it a couple weeks ago, or last week. Um, Matthew 23, 16-17. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple or that which has made the gold sacred? 
what are we worshiping, right? Are we worshiping the right things? Are we worshiping God or are we worshiping things is really the question. And, and this comes out in all sorts of ways in the church. Again, we have comfort in our tradition, right? Yo, I'm just doing this because I do this. And it doesn't have to be like traditional traditions, right? Our tradition is we come and have food, and then we gather for worship, and then we preach a sermon, and then we pray afterwards, and that's a tradition that has become, right? And we have communion every Sunday. It's different. It's something we do that's different. That's a tradition that we have. And if we're not careful in our hearts, we can make a God of these things. It doesn't matter what church you're in, okay? You can look at your way of things that you do and go, we do it best, and we worship the way we do the things instead of the God who allows us to do the things. It's so quick. I mean, see how quickly the people of Israel, Gideon says the most powerful, profound thing that a man in power could say, I will not be your ruler. Instead, God will be your ruler. Here's an ephod. Let us worship God. Like, oh, an ephod. Let's worship it. (laughs) How? How is it so quick? And I would challenge our hearts that we are exactly the same way if we're not careful. We worship our traditions. Uh, we, we elevate pastors. Like, well, I go to such and such church, and this pastor has great teaching, and da-da-da-da-da. It's like, it's, man, I'm sorry. You got the short end of the stick here, okay? Like, you, like, this is not it, okay? Like, you cannot be finding your faith through a pastor. And so often, that's exactly what we do. Instead of worshiping Jesus and having a relationship with him, we go, well, I, I listen to Pastor Blake's teaching, and Pastor Blake says that the judges are good people. <laughs> well, guess what? The pastor across the street says the judges are terrible people. And God used them anyway. You know what I mean? So, like, I challenge you, find your faith in Christ alone, not through a pastor. We elevate worship experiences, right? We go, man, if the worship were just more powerful, then I could really connect with the Lord. And I challenge you, is it about the power of the worship or is it about the Lord himself? Because you will be able to worship in a jail cell if you're worshiping the Lord, okay? Paul said, rejoice always. And again, I tell you rejoice by the pen of in the, with a pin inside of a jail cell, okay? So if he can worship in a jail cell, as many of our brothers and sisters do even unto this day, then it's not about how powerful the experience is. Listen, I was telling Sebastian just like last week or the week before, man, I would love to be in just a huge hall and worship, and I just kind of like haven't done that in a while, you know, like with a huge group of people worshiping, right? And it's a cool experience. I don't know if you've ever had that opportunity, but it's a beautiful thing to be in the span of thousands of people and singing worship to God. It is awesome, but I don't need that, right, to worship God, and you don't need that to worship the Lord. We do this with our lives all the time. Um, We look back at a time in life where we were closer to God, right? I look back at a mountaintop experience, maybe literally, like where you went up to a mountain camping out with some friends. You're like, that's where I really met the Lord, and I was really close to him then. And then we pine for getting back to that closeness. And pretty quick, if we're not careful in our hearts, we idolize what we experienced in the past instead of pursuing the Lord himself. It's really easy 
to judge right battles. And it's really easy to worship things instead of God. And I hope that from Gideon today, you've heard that Gideon is, all he's doing is being obedient to what the Lord told him to do. And that's the challenge to us. If we're going to be in the kingdom of Christ, then the only call to us is obedience. This is the kingdom of Christ that has come. The kingdom is not built on the right way of doing things. The kingdom is not built on going to the greatest area of need or whatever. The kingdom of God is built on obedience. It's, it's not built on results. It's not built on the lack of results, what we call maybe suffering. You know, It's not built on the outcome. It's built on being obedient to the God who has called you. That's it. That's the only metric that matters in the kingdom of God, is obedience to Jesus. And so Jesus says some things, right? And they're very hard things, very simple, quick things. I'll challenge you with just three things that Jesus said, that, man, if you're just obedient to these three statements, one's going to be really familiar to you. Repent and believe. Man, need it every day. Repent and believe. That's the kingdom of God right there, knowing that like you need Jesus. Repent and believe. Second, go and make disciples. Go tell other people what Jesus has told you. Right? Just meditate on that one for a while. Finally, follow me. Jesus says to you and you and you and you and me to follow him. Not to you to follow me, but to you to follow Jesus. Okay? Your call is to follow Christ. To be obedient to what he calls you to do. This is the kingdom of God. It's not measured by metrics or ways of doing things, what's right or most efficient or whatever. Man, if the Lord were about efficiency, we wouldn't be here, okay? Like, it'd be over. going to stop, you know? He could do it in a breath. He's not worried about efficiency. He's worried about our hearts. And when he's worried about his hearts, we're talking about obedience to what he's called us to do. This is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even challenging passages like this one. And God, we desire to be obedient to you. And so God, help us to be uh, satisfied in that, to be content with that, Lord. Um, I pray, God, that we would dwell on these things, that we would dwell on things that Jesus said repent and believe, man, that we would look at our hearts and say, God, um, man, if there's any unclean way in me, please reveal it. And that we repent and go, God, I, I need you again. And believe on the faith, uh, on faith in what Christ has done for you.
And Lord, help us not to allow it to stop with us. Uh, help us to, to characterize, to, to shape our lives around the call that you gave to every follower of you to go make disciples, to look around at our neighborhoods, to look around at our family, to look around at our coworkers and say, God, you've called me to go to these that you've placed around me and to make disciples, um, to testify to the hope that is within me because of Christ. And Lord, help us. Uh, help us to follow you wherever you go. Help us to follow you. Help us not to be concerned what other people think. Help us not to compare ourselves to other people and say, well, they do it this way and they're successful, so we should do it that way. But rather, Lord, help us listen to you and say, God, you have given me this, and I give it all back to you. I'm not going to withhold anything. I want to follow you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that we learn from the boldness of Gideon that he would do what you've called him to do and complete, into completion. And that instead of hoarding power and success for himself, would say, no, let's worship God. He's the one that has done these things. Let him rule over us. In this way, he pointed forward to you, Jesus, and your willingness to lay down yourself for us to go obediently to the cross and die on our behalf. We're forever grateful. Lord, we thank you for this time you've given us in the word and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.